Why don't you grab your Bible and turn to Zechariah chapter eight. Do you guys love the Bible? Man, I do. There's a story of a guy, um, Anatoly Borosovich Sharansky, also known as Nathan Sharansky. Um, he was a, a, a dissident Soviet Jew. He kissed his wife goodbye as she left Russia for freedom in Israel. Um, and his parting words to her uh, were, I'll see you soon in Jerusalem. Uh, but Anatoly was uh, detained there in the Soviet Union and finally imprisoned. Um, and the reunion that he'd hoped for for his, he and his wife in Jerusalem, you know, seeking freedom there and, and as a Jew uh, back to their, you know, place of their country, you know, really is what they were hoping for. Um, but he realized that that was postponed. Maybe it never even would see her ever again. That, that was the possibility. But during those long years, he was in, in the actual Russian prisons there for more than nine years, stripped of all of his personal belongings. His only possession that he was able to keep was this little miniature copy of the Psalms. Um, during one of his imprisonment times, he, he was refusing. They, they said, give us your little book. And he, and he said, I know. And he like would fight for it. Like, and they said, listen, you either give us your little book or we're gonna throw you in uh, 130 days of solitary confinement in the hole. And he would not give up his little psalm book. And so they threw him for 130 days in solitary confinement. And finally, after 12 years, having parted with his wife 12 years earlier, um, in February of 1986, as the world watched, Sharansky was allowed to walk away from Russian guards um, towards those who would take him to Jerusalem. But in those final moments of captivity, uh, the guards tried again to compensate his little psalm book, but Anatoly threw himself face down in the snow and refused to walk on to the freedom world without his little psalm book. Those words kept him alive while he was in prison, as he said. He would uh, not go on to freedom without the little book. Um, this is a picture of, um, of him um, uh, coming uh, to Jerusalem. He lands there in Tel Aviv. Uh, and he's finally getting into, this is a kind of an amazing story, really. Um, and he becomes a political leader and he became sort of a various ministerial roles in Israel, a human rights activist, a Israeli politician, served other roles, uh, but kind of an amazing guy. But the little book of Psalms, man, he, he was willing to go into solitary confinement for 130 days and he was willing to even stay in prison rather than let his little book of Psalms go. Like, do we really love the Bible? You know, it's, it's funny when people that go through tough times, that's, 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 that becomes their lifeblood. The Bible becomes more precious the more in trouble you are. That's something you see throughout the, the world. And I don't know about you, but as the days get darker, um, as we just witnessed just, um, you know, in the last 48 hours, uh, you know, that horrible shooting down in Texas, you know, how do you make sense of all the things that happen? And there's nothing worse, I think, than trying to make sense of, you know, so many children in a grade school, you know, shot by, you know, I believe perhaps demonically inspired, maybe possessed. I, I sense real evil. You know, it's not just, everybody wants to talk about gun control, you know, but people, people you know, it's funny because they don't even want to talk about mental illness, but even those people who are talking about mental illness don't want to talk about demonic control and spiritual evil, you know? Um, I sense that this is kind of where our nation has gone. The more immoral we become as a nation, the more we move away from God, the more 
really, sadly, we're seeing the world just kind of go crazier and crazier. Um, people talk about, why are we seeing, you know, the, um, you know uh, I saw a thing from the FBI about the, you know, the shoot, school shootings are up 40% from several years ago and the frequency of them. But meanwhile, there's a lot of evils, I think, that go co- totally contrary to what the Bible teaches. Um, and politicians will banter back and forth and try to figure out what the problems are. And the thing that we're seeing is they're definitely not getting things better. Um, and so some people say, well, what's the solution? I do believe that our, our politicians should figure it out. Um, and I think they're not even close for the most part of figuring out what they need to do. But maybe even more importantly, I think you know, pastors and preachers need to figure it out. We need to get back to teaching what the Bible actually says and stand on it and stand on it firmly because the Bible tells us about how to be parents what's evil and what's good. And our world is calling so much evil, they're calling it good and they're calling good evil. We've got it all backwards. And so the longer we go down this path, the more evil we see. And there's all kinds of evil going on. And it is something, you know, you see this happen because it's all at one time. But in Chicago, do you know how many children are being killed every weekend in Chicago? Um, And it's amazing to me, you know, here's a, here's a place where gun control, you know, it's illegal to have a firearm and, and, and bullets in Chicago, it's illegal. But that's the deadliest place in America really is Chicago. So we're trying to figure out practical, you know, trying to figure out stuff, but you know what the truth is? We're spiritually depraved as a nation. We need the Lord. We need to have people be saved and converted to Jesus and repent of their sins. And, and then we need to apply the morality of the Bible. Because when we're living like the Bible tells us as moms and dads, husbands and wives, and even stuff we're gonna cover here in Zechariah, Lord's gonna talk about things that he actually hates tonight. Yes, God hates stuff. One of the things he hates, I think, is one of the key problems with what we're seeing with mental illness and with shootings in America. One of the problems of the things the Lord says he actually hates, it's listed here in Zechariah. That's one of the culprits of the problem. Man, I love the word because it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our bath. Man, you won't get it on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. Uh, You won't get the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path from all those news sources. You'll get the lamp and the, the light from the word of God. And that's why it's so good to be able to open up our Bibles tonight and learn what the Bible actually says. And, and Zachariah is talking about a broad scope of history. He's talking about the first coming of Christ and he's talking about the second coming of Christ. So all that to say, we, we have a lot to look at tonight. We're gonna pick up where we left off in Zechariah chapter eight. Um, and um, one of the things that we're doing as we study through the Bible, is uh, we, we, uh, we mentioned on Sunday, you know, and, and, and one of the funny things, you, it's hard to find good studies in the book of Zechariah. Um, if you ever go look for good studies in the book of Zechariah, there's only one group of people that you'll find actually teaching the book of Zechariah, and that's pre-trib, pre-millennial preachers. You, you won't find, it's it, like find an amillennialist uh, preacher or a Catholic priest or, or you know, someone who's in you know, Presbyterians, the guys that believe in replacement theology, there, there's no literal Israel that the Bible cares about. The church replaced Israel. Like as soon as you get into some of that other kind of stuff, you'll never hear them talk about Zechariah. I'll tell you why. Because if you're an amillennialist, Zechariah doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And it'd be impossible to, to explain 
what Zechariah is talking about if you hold a amillennial view. Now, if you're new to this, the premillennial or, you know, like, you know, if you're, a, don't, don't be confused as you kind of zoom in, you know, I'm a pre-trib. Uh, I believe the rapture of the church is gonna happen before the tribulation. There's some that believe in the middle. Some people believe in the end or at the, at the end of the tribulation, the rapture of the church. Um, but they're all pre-millennial, premillennialists. That it's all gonna happen premillennial. Okay, that's kind of important. Then there's there's the postmillennialists and the amillennialists. And amillennialists means ah means no, no millennial kingdom. So the amillennialists don't believe in any literal millennial kingdom. It's all figurative. And some of them believe that we're already living in the millennial kingdom. Boy, that'd be depressing right now if that's the case. Wouldn't you be depressed? It's like, oh yeah, that shooting, that's happening during the millennial kingdom when there's no more transgression and end of sin and the lion will lie down with the lamb and there'll be peace and prosperity. Um, that's a knucklehead view if you ask me. Uh, just watch what's going on in the world. Now, some of those don't believe we're living in the glorious part of the kingdom yet and we have to usher in the kingdom. That's the kingdom now theology. Um, you'll notice churches that are into the kingdom now, they're all about, you know, uh, becoming more powerful in the world politically, uh, influencing wise. Um, you know, some of you might wonder, maybe you guys watch the, you know, the Discover Channel is a big thing on Hillsong uh, and the church there in Australia and what happened there. And it's another one of those horrible stories of churches gone bad and, and stuff. And you gotta understand that's from a secular perspective, but sadly Hillsong did some horrible things and it's, it's just kind of a bummer. But one of the things, you, have you ever wondered like, why did Carl Lentz there in New York hang out with Justin Bieber and why was that such a big deal? Um, and uh, if you saw the picture of the pastor, he's wearing his shorts, hanging down to here with his abs, you know, uh, I could do that with my ab, uh, but nobody wants to look at that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, he's walking around and, and you know it's bad when Joe Rogue is like, who's that dude next to Justin Bieber, you know? And it's like, oh, that's, that's the pastor. Oh, um, what happened there? Well, you gotta understand in a kingdom now uh, theology or dominion theology, they're trying to be influencers. Like, like that's one of the th things you'll see in that part of the church that doesn't believe in end times, you know, rapture of the church, uh, the millennial kingdom, the literal interpretation of Bible prophecy. Those churches that don't really believe that, they're trying to be influencers now. They wanna be influencers socially, politically, and otherwise, all different ways. And, and you kind of saw how Hillsong was getting caught up in that. And some, there's a lot of churches that are still like that where they just really wanna become hugely influencers. Now, it's a little tricky because what does Aether Greek wanna do? Well, we, we don't wanna be like um, ineffective, but what we wanna do is be all about not furthering our strength in the, in the you know, popular influencers or stuff. What we wanna do is promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like a, like a pre-millennial, uh, pre-trib church, what you'll find is that they're sharing the gospel and they're about teaching the Bible and getting people to come to Christ. And, and we believe that you know, the, the, the kingdom comes when Jesus decides to come. Uh, it's not man that makes the kingdom come. Uh, the dominion theology or kingdom now, they think man's gonna make that happen. We believe Jesus just taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's gonna do that when he wants to. Um, and boy, talk about, there's so much in the Bible, the Jewish wedding. And the way the, the bridegroom comes for his, church, his, his uh, bride and the, it's a picture of Christ in the church and the whole thing fits so perfectly. But the problem is when the church tries to become politically influencing and, and socially you know, influencing and all that, they can be way off course very quickly. Um, the reason I talk about that is um, 
you know, the, um, the, the book of Zechariah, um, with churches that have that view, makes zero sense to them. That's why you'll never see a Bible study uh, in Zechariah by, you know, Hillsong or, or any church that's a uh, Catholic church or whatever, Presbyterians. Um, so it's, um, now, now some people say, well, Brett, you pre-tribbers, um, you have a, yours is a new eschatology. You kind of made up yours in the last several hundred years. Um, now, I don't agree with that, but even if I give that argument to them, because uh, I believe Peter and James and John and Paul were all pre-tribbers, uh, and you can read that in the Bible. They believed in a pre-trib rapture of the church. So it goes all the way back to the New Testament. That, that's just, to me, that's really easy to defend. But one of the things that um, the amillennialists will say is you guys believe in some new invented eschatology. Uh, we believe in the old, oldest eschatology, uh, and, and uh, they, they're proud of that. Now, by the way, when it comes to doctrine, I'm into old. I believe in old dead guys that are talking about stuff. I don't like the new stuff. Watch out for the new guys, the new books, new Christian doctrines, wacko. All things doctrine, I love the old stuff. But when it comes to Bible prophecy, there's a couple things you need to be reminded about, and this will help us with our understanding of, of Zechariah. Do you remember what it says there in Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel, he's, you know, he's told at the end of his prophecy, but thou, o Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. Um, what an amazing thing. You know, uh, the book should be sealed to the time. Do you guys remember what it says in the book of Revelation at the end of that book? Yeah, don't seal that book. Revelation 22.10. And he said unto me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. What's this about? Seal up the words. It's not for you, Daniel. It's not for your time. So seal up the words. And then at the end of Revelation, at the end of the New Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years later, the, the revelation of uh, Jesus Christ given to John the apostle, don't seal up those words. And then back to our Daniel 12, and it says, you know, seal not the sayings of, of this book, um, but it says in verse four, it says, but knowledge shall be increased. Now you can make the argument that that's technology and science and you can make that argument. And, and I, I would with this scripture because that's what will happen in the end times. But some would argue also that knowledge about the things that would be sealed up would increase. Um, how is Daniel supposed to know um, when he's talking about end times eschatology and the end of the world, how is he supposed to understand what's going on? You know, um, and, and again, I would have been an amillennialist five, 600 years ago, because Israel didn't even exist. You'd say, well, it must be figurative. Israel's no longer a nation. That's why Martin Luther was an anti-Semite because he said those Jews killed Jesus and they're no longer God's chosen people. That was his conclusion. He wrote some horrible things about the Jews. Did some good stuff too, a little thing called the Reformation. But, but his Jewish uh, anti-Semitism was over the top. Hitler used Luther to defend the Holocaust, uh, just so you know. Um, but how did that happen? Why did, why did Luther have such a weird view? It's because Israel didn't even exist as a nation. The Jews were in Russia and, and other places around the globe, but not Israel, Palestine, the Holy Land. Um, so what, what's happening? We get the, the privilege, you and I, to live in the last days where Israel becomes a nation again. And all these prophecies, Ezekiel 36, 37, uh, have come to pass perfectly. We're watching them unfold right before our eyes. Literally, perfectly, literally. That's why the amillennials should have checked their amillennial card at the door and said, forget that. Look at the Bible prophecy that's happening right now. Um, now, 
I gotta say, in defense of uh, amillennialists and preterists, uh, they're very smart people. I'm not trying to insult them. They're very, some of the smartest, honestly, because you have to be really smart to try to come up with a construct that sort of works. But because of the stupidity of some eschatology buffs and, and, and prophecy people predicting things like who the Antichrist is and days and hours and stuff like that, a lot of the intellectual people said, yeah, the pre-trib view is a bunch of wacko people. And the problem, I have to give it to them. Um, I've got a lot of good pre-trib friends that I see online. I go, ooh, ee, ah. Why are the weirdest ones sometimes the ones that, um, and um, I just, it's just what it is, but it, it does fit with Bible prophecy because the Bible says in the last days, people say, where is the promise of his coming? It's always been the same. And you guys that are into this, there's kind of an insulting sort of vibe in the Bible. So it's all fulfilling Bible prophecy. But in Zechariah, we're gonna see that, um, you know, things are gonna unfold, both the tribulation period, then the, the second coming of Christ. And we're gonna see here in chapter eight, um, you know, the future of Israel, uh, a literal future, by the way. Um, I love that. This, this is something that, that, this is why the preterists struggle with the book of Zechariah, because we're talking about a literal Israel in the future and the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom. And it's all very literal. Time and time again, the Bible is proven to be literally right. And when I say literally, it's not like the teenager, oh, I'm just literally dying. No, I, I'm saying no, the literal interpretation of the Bible is actually very rewarding. If you just take the Bible, Literally, it's very rewarding. And by the way, you should always take the Bible literally unless, unless um, the Bible says that it's figurative. You know, like uh, there's, there's places in the Bible where the Bible says this is a type or a figure or a parable or something like that. And the Bible gives us very clear symbols and signals uh, when something's not to be taken literally, okay? So that's kind of important too. Um, so uh, the time, uh, uh, you know, the thing about the Bible is about this is just so powerful. Um, now, as we divide Zechariah uh, into some chunks before we kind of move on, because with our Sunday teachings and our Wednesday teachings, sometimes I feel like we get a little lost in, in the order of, of events here. But in section one of Zechariah, we covered chapters one through six. Those were the, the eight visions of Zechariah. We finished those last week. Section two, chapter seven through eight, um, were the questions uh, by the people. Remember in chapter seven, Lord, should we fast, weep, and mourn all these years as we've done so long, you know, these many years? And the Lord says, you can do it if you want to, but I'm not in it. I'd rather you be nice to people. Remember that? Uh, don't, you know, oppress the poor and, and, and stuff like that and be, be merciful and stuff like that. Um, so, and we're gonna, we're gonna kind of finish section two tonight as we get into chapter eight. And, then, and, and there's more questions by the people that we'll see. But then in section three, the last section, chapters nine through 14, that's really dealing largely with the first and the second coming of Christ. Um, now, don't forget the Jews looked at this as a single event, the coming of Christ, but they didn't realize the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible would speak of the coming of Christ in two advents. Uh, the first coming, born in Bethlehem, uh, living his life, dying on the cross, raising from the dead, ascending in heaven. That's the first coming. And they didn't know that that was gonna happen. They didn't understand that. And I don't blame them. I'm just saying they didn't get it. Um, and when they read, we looked at this on Sunday, when they read the Hebrew scriptures about their Messiah being bruised and wounded, beaten, dying on a cross and stuff like that prophetically, they just kind of sweep that under the rug because they didn't want a king that was beaten and bruised. They wanted a conquering warrior. So they capitalized on the scriptures that were glorious conquering king scriptures, but they kind of just ignored 
the other ones that were the more the meek and lowly scriptures of the Messiah. So they missed his first coming because they didn't recognize it. They'd swept those scriptures under the rug. So here in chapter eight, we kind of pick up uh, in that second section, uh, the questions by the people. Let's take a look, verse one of chapter eight. It says there, again, the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I was jealous for her with great fury. Again, this word jealousy stumbles people. Um, and um, what's interesting is the heart of the Lord. You know, the Lord is gonna correct the wrongs. Do you, do you kind of sense this? I, I think if, if you could use this word jealous, because there's an evil definition of jealousy, um, but there's also a, a, a good jealous. Did you know that? Um, and, and I've mentioned this before, but when, when did Oprah become a new ager? Um, back when she was younger, her pastor was teaching on that God is a jealous God. And she thought to herself, I don't wanna serve and believe a jealous God. That's a human sinful characteristic. And she left the true faith of Jesus um, and went to more of a new age version of so-called you know, faith um, because of the word jealous. And she didn't understand. Um, there's two words that it can be an ugly, weird jealous. Uh, you know, if you're jealous of you know, someone who has something you want, uh, I'm jealous that they got to have that car or that boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever you're jealous of. Yeah, that's ugly and evil. But uh, there's a good jealousy and it's usually not a jealousy of someone, it's a jealousy for someone. Um, I think some of you, you know, it even uses the word fury and jealousy. Um, maybe this is what some of you felt when you heard yesterday of the shooting in Texas. And you heard about these little children that were shot by this 18 year old kid and you felt fury <laughs> as I did. And uh, there's a sort of a jealousy for those children. Like, you know, for, so I think some of us are wired where you, you, wanna, you wanna do something. Like you're, you, you, there's a, I, like I've got to do something about this. And, uh, and it gets kind of brutal, or, but sinfulness creeps into humanity pretty quickly thereafter. But God has a righteous fury and a righteous jealousy for his people Israel. Um, I hope you understand this, that you know, the Lord is not um, you know, jealous for or of the Jews or of the Babylonians or of the Romans. He's jealous for his people, the Jews. Jealousy, if you look it up in the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word for this, there's two definitions. One's the negative one, but the, the, the good version is defined like this in the Hebrew Bible. In a favorable sense to denote a consuming zeal focused on one that is loved. Isn't that interesting? That's the definition in the Hebrew, um, the second one. In a favorable sense to denote consuming zeal focused on the one who's loved. Um, and so the Lord loves his people, the Jews. He's got a heart for the Jews. Um, and yet nation after nation has trounced over the Jews time and time again. Um, interesting, um, one of the things we're gonna see in Zechariah is the nations that try to handle Israel, whether good or bad or ugly. The Lord's got a problem with these nations trying to handle the Jews. Uh, how are the United States done with this? Uh, trying to deal with the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, I've been alive long enough to see these presidents come and go, and they always have to have the money shot. You guys know what the money shot is if you're a president of the United States? Because if you can solve the Arab-Israeli you know, conflict, 
that's like the, that's the pinnacle, that's the top of, of a presidency, if he can figure that out. Um, I always laugh because of those presidents, they, they don't understand their Bibles. There is coming someone who will seem to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict, who will that be? Antichrist. So if we ever have a president of the United States that signs a contract that's legit and, and brings a, a peace between the Arabs and Israelis, at least for three, three and a half years, then he's probably the Antichrist. So it's funny, all these presidents, I've got the money shot pictures of some of these guys. You guys remember this was Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, between the Arabs and you know, Israelis. You got Bill Clinton with the money shot. Um, they, you know, uh, this is the big one. If you can get the president standing between the two factions with out, hands outstretched, that's the money, money, money shot. Um, and Clinton got that, of course, that, uh, that Yasser Arafat, he didn't really help the situation that much. Um, and then you get, of course, uh, you know, Bush, hey, howdy, you know, it's like, that's Bush uh, with the Arab Israelis trying to solve the problem. Uh, and then you got, you know, Barack Obama and others, um, you know, and, and honestly, uh, Trump actually did some good work with the uh, Abraham Accords, interestingly enough. I, I couldn't find a good picture of him holding his hands out like all these guys. Um, he just actually did something more than the photo op. I'm just gonna say it uh, for, for the Jewish, relationship with Israel. This is our president today uh, working with the Israelis. Um, I'm sorry, but that's true. That's a true picture right there. He uh, fell asleep uh, during the um, uh, Israeli prime minister visit, but be that as it may. Um, the reason I, I talk about that is because um, the, the book of Zechariah is gonna tell us the nations that try to handle the Arab-Israeli conflict, especially as it relates to Jerusalem, they're gonna be handling a cup of trembling. Zachariah is gonna teach us that. And the idea of a cup of trembling is like, you don't wanna mess with it. Um, it you'll, you'll either, you'll, you know, if you try to deal with the Arab-Israeli conflict, you'll be crushed, you'll be broken. And there'll be those nations, Zachariah is gonna tell us in 12 and 14, that there's gonna be nations that are gonna to try to divide Jerusalem in half. Um, and those nations are gonna be crushed by that. Um, boy, it's an amazing prophecy we're gonna see here in Zechariah. it's coming. Um, but all that to say, uh, Jesus is the only one who will truly deal with the conflict. Antichrist will come and appear to sign a peace treaty um, and he'll have that for a short while, but about three and a half years into that treaty, the Antichrist will be shown for who he really is. Jesus is the, the one who's gonna really bring in a true peace. Um, now, uh, Seeking to, to divide Israel, the roadmap to peace, as we've called it over the years and stuff. Um, the Lord is not done with the Jews. He is jealous for them. Don't ever forget that. I think that there's a couple issues. People, people say, Brett tells us how to vote. Uh, I've never done that. Never told people how to vote. But I'll just tell you this. Um, if you're a Christian who believes the Bible, there are some things that are always on the ballot that are kind of, I think, worthy of us Christians uh, doing kind of some research and understanding what the Bible says. Uh, one is abortion. Uh, that's, that's an issue the Bible's very clear on. Uh, and the Bible doesn't look at it as a fetal tissue. The Bible says that that little person in a mother's womb, that should be the safest place on earth, by the way. Um, and it's a place where God is doing a miraculous work in creation of a person. Um, and there's no question about that one. But the other political issue that is just very clear in the Bible is what a nation does about Israel. What is a, what is a person's position on the nation Israel? And if you wanna see America blessed, the Bible says, I will bless the nation that blesses Israel, but I will curse the nation that curses Israel. And you can track that in our history of our United States. When we've had leadership that goes to kind of curse Israel, we end up being cursed and it's trackable. 
But when we had leadership that was trying to bless Israel, you can track how we've just been in times of prosperity. And it's just like clockwork. It's, it's quite amazing. Books have been written about that, about the blessing and cursing of, of the United States by our position, based on our position, even point for point, event for event, how you can track blessing and cursing. So it's kind of an interesting thing. All that to say, God is jealous for his people and we should remember that as Americans, as the Gentile church. Uh, what a sad thing that the Pope is sort of anti-Israel. Uh, and that, that makes a lot of Americans indifferent uh, about the Jews and Israel and stuff like that. It's a bad position. It's not a biblical position. So God says, I am jealous and I'm jealous for it with a great fury. That's something you don't wanna mess with. God in great fury. I don't want any part of that. Uh, that's just verse two. But verse three, thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. Boy, that sounds good. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Um, thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Boy, interesting, we come across this tonight. You know, this, this, the idea of, now, when is the truth gonna come to Jerusalem? When is the, they're gonna be, you know, the, the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem? When is it gonna become the city of truth? Um, this is where we, we as New Testament Christian church, we have an advantage over the Hebrew people of the Old Testament because we know what the first coming of Christ. So I'm gonna ask you tonight, uh, quiz, quiz night, you know, what's first coming, what's second coming, okay? You guys ready for that? So um, verses three, four, and five, first coming or second coming of Christ? Second coming, and that's clear because the city of Jerusalem streets are not a safe place to go. Uh, even today, you know, now compared to Chicago, it's safe. I'm just gonna say that. Um, I would much rather be in Jerusalem in the middle of the night, walking down the street than Chicago. I'm just saying that because it's true. Um, but traditionally, Jerusalem has been somewhat of an unsafe city. It's funny, Yerushalem, city of peace. <laughs> but that's hardly been what it is. Um, but that's what it's gonna be. It's gonna be that when Christ comes, rules and reigns. Um, and uh, right now, by the way, the city streets of Jerusalem have been somewhat safer in the last you know, couple decades um, because they actually built the wall that separates the, the West Bank and, and the division of Jerusalem. And so they haven't had the bombs going off. I remember um, back when I was there in uh, 96 with Debbie and I were there in, in Jerusalem and a bomb went off on a bus uh, right there in, in Jerusalem. And it's just an amazing thing to see um, how the Jews handle that kind of stuff, man. You know, um, when we have stuff like that here in America, man, we have, you know, police lines do not cross for three weeks and investigations and everything goes kind of crazy. The Jews handle that very differently. They get that bus, you know, if that bus got blown up and, you know, nine people killed as was the, the day I was there in Jerusalem, um, uh, the next day that bus was running. Uh, they had a brand new bus ready to roll. Uh, that, that line, they, they just kind of bravely move forward. Um, it's kind of amazing. Um, and there is somewhat security there because of the wall. There haven't been any real explosions in Jerusalem like there was back 20 years ago because of the wall. And even weapons, a lot of uh, weapons, they haven't had any shooters and stuff like that. Um, as it turns out, um, children are starting to play safely in the streets now. 
The problem is in Jerusalem, people still drive cars and still have knives. And that's what you're seeing happening in Jerusalem in the last you know, 10 years or so is there'll be a guy take a truck and drive into uh, groups of people. Um, to kill people or, or a knife and stuff like that. It is kind of funny. I remember when I first used to bring groups to Israel, um, some of our Portlanders were a little uncomfortable because there's so many weapons everywhere. You know, like the, the Israeli IDF soldiers, there's all these girls, they're like 18 year old girls walking around with, you know, M16 rifles and Tavors and you're just having pizza with these teenage girls. You know, back we were, we were, when we were there, I remember saying, girls in America, they'd be sitting around talking about Britney Spears. These girls are, you know, they're ready to kill you. Uh, a very different kind of teenager uh, in Israel. But you'd see a kindergarten class on a field trip and the, the, there'd be the teacher with an Uzi and a mother there with a sawed off shotgun, just kind of walking with the, and you say, that's horrible. Honestly, uh, what, what's amazing is everybody's kind of used to that and, and uh, people don't run and try to kill kindergarten classes anymore in Jerusalem because they won't last. There's, there's guns everywhere. Just kind of, I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying this is what we saw in, in Israel, which is kind of interesting. And you do kind of get used to that. It's kind of funny. But um, kindergarten classes, armed teachers, that's not the peace that's gonna be when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, it's gonna be a true peace. Not just, you know, people sporting Uzis and Tavors and M16s. When Christ comes, it's gonna be a time of ultimate peace and it's gonna be great. And it goes on in verse six. <clears throat> Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? This is kind of a funny language, but it's basically saying, you know, the Jews would be going, that's too amazing. We can't even imagine that. But then the Lord says, are you kidding? Do you think I can't imagine that? Because I can do anything I want. That's, that's kind of what the Lord's saying. It might seem incredible to you, but it's perfectly logical to me is what the Lord is saying there. And he calls himself again there, the Lord of hosts, uh, which is a military warfare term. He's the Lord of armies. And in verse seven, thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the East country and from the West country. That's an interesting question. Scholars debate, what does this mean? Because um, you could say, um, in, in different ways, the way this says this in the Hebrew is, it's, is that the Lord's gonna save the people that are in the East country or in the West country? Or is it talking about saving the people from the East country and the West country? Um, and, and there's debate about that. Um, the Jews that are in the East country or the West country, um, you know, you could talk about the West and the East, the Eastern Bloc countries and the Western countries. And, you know, that we can, there's all kinds of speculation. Of, but the bottom line is you can, you can look at it as the United States, the East country is the Orient or, the, or maybe the further into the Middle East, um, or is the West country Europe and the United States, the West, you know, the West as we call it today. Uh, and the Lord's gonna save his people out of there from tyranny. Or is it just a location? Don't know for sure. But the, the, the take home here is the Lord's gonna protect his people. That's the main thing. Verse eight, and I will bring them and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people <clears throat> and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Is that first coming or second coming? Second coming, because that hasn't happened yet. But Christ is coming to Jerusalem where there's gonna be an everlasting peace uh, it says there, and also ruling in Jerusalem. That's verse eight. Verse nine says then, um, back to Zechariah's time, it says, thus saith the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, that, you, that uh, ye that hear in these days, these words, by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, 
that the temple might be built. Now, can, can I just say, this is an important thing. Let your hands be strong. strong. This speaks of what they were doing. Question, what was the t- major task that they needed to finish during the time of Zechariah? Anybody? Building the temple, right? They'd already, Ezra and Nehemiah built the wall. Now they're Zerubbabel with Zechariah and the gang. They're rebuilding the temple. Um, and it's interesting because as we look at this, there's something for us, I think, too. Uh, I think that we need to follow this word, too. Let your hands be strong, um, ye that hear uh, in, in these days. Um, man, I'll tell you, in the days we're living, living in, I think we need to let our hands be strong. That which we're doing, what should we do? Serve the Lord. The good servant, Matthew 24, it's going about the business of the, of the master and being busy about his kingdom. We should be doing that, spreading the gospel, loving on the unlovely, taking care of the needy and the poor, preaching the gospel, baptizing, making disciples. We should be doing that. And interestingly, part of that is linked to a temple. If you remember, we're living in one of the temple periods. Where's the temple today? Us, what? Don't you know, Paul says there in Corinthians, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple to the Holy Ghost? So we need to be doing that work of the temple. There's a kind of a neat correlation there that you shouldn't be weak uh, as Christians, we need to be strong, as it says here. Let your hands be strong. I think that's a good word for us, um, that the temple might be built. For verse 10, for before these days, um, there was no hire uh, for man, nor hire for beast. Neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I set all men, every one against his neighbor. But now, I will not be unto the residue of this people as in the former days, saith the Lord of hosts. Four, verse 12, the seed shall be prosperous. The vine shall give her fruit. The ground shall give her increase and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And it shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Man, I love this. Um, Do you remember what we read about in Zechariah chapter four, uh, verse 10? It said, for who hath despised the day of the small things? Like like get busy about the things that you don't think are important. You gotta still do the, the small things. For they shall rejoice and see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. And they are the eyes, uh, those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the earth. Don't let your hands be weak in the work of building. Don't despise the work that you have to do, the work of the small things. Now, in verses 10 through 13 here, um, basically the Lord's saying times are tough, and they have been for the Jews, if you know Jewish history. But he's saying that there's gonna be a blessing and a time of blessing and a time of fruitfulness. Now, this is, this is one of the prophecies, another prophecy you and I have seen come or starting to come to pass. Not only the Valley of Dry Bones, the Jews gathering back into Israel in the Holy Land, like we talked about on Sunday, <clears throat> but even the land itself. One of the fun things about going to Israel is to see how beautiful and fruitful it's become. Um, and this is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. The Bible said that the Jews would be scattered from the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. There was a day where Israel was flowing with milk and honey. But then it became very, very desolate. And there's a lot of reasons why that happened. Several of the big moments in history in Israel or Palestine as they'd like to call it after the Jews were driven out in AD 70. But the Romans hated the Jews. One of the things Emperor Hadrian did 
um, <clears throat> excuse me, was salting the farmlands. Did you guys know that Hadrian did that? He poured salt on the Jews' farmlands. Well, how did you get so much salt? Israel's got a lot of salt. Uh, just go to the region of the Dead Sea, just take out a shovel and you get a shovel full of salt. Uh, and they're still, they're still mining salt out and potassium or potash, I should say, out of the Dead Sea right now. But, um, uh, but Hadrian got all the salt and salted the land so that the Jews couldn't go back to their land and farm. But, um, but that was Hadrian. After that, the Ottoman Turks came years later and they, they, they did this interesting tax system where the, the Turks said, we will tax every tree you have uh, on your property. In other words, if you're a farmer and you got a bunch of fruit trees or, or trees of any kind, you'll be taxed according to your trees. Well, the Jews were smart and made major tax cuts. <laughs> Literally cut down their trees. So bad was this after, you know, a, 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 you know like a century of this, um, you understand there's a long time of being taxed with trees. The Jews cut down so many trees and the people of the uh, Palestine at that day <clears throat> cut so many trees down, it actually changed the whole um, you know, climate of that region of the world. And it became a barren desert. The land flowing with milk and honey became a land that was so barren. Um, and uh, what's interesting about that is um, you know, and I've always talked about, the, has anybody read any of the Mark Twain writings about Israel? I've referred to that a few times. If you haven't read it, and I, I saw one hand go up, so you guys didn't do what I asked you to do, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> but it, the reason I, I always talk about this, this is a picture of Mark Twain where that little circle is, he's on the ship going to Israel back, you know, more than a hundred years ago. But um, this is the Jewish version of his writings of Israel when he visited um, the land of Israel. Um, and what was interesting is he did this back when the Zionist movement was still at its beginning. And um, listen to some of the things that Mark Twain wrote about and said about, um, about Israel when he went and visited. He said, the further we went, the hotter the sun got and the more rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary the landscape became. Um, and that was his view of it. And, and by the way, he wasn't impressed with, with the Holy Land. He said, all of the lands there are for dismal scenery. I think Palestine must be the prince. Of all the lands that are dismal scenery, he said, Palestine is the prince of those lands. Uh, speaking of the Sea of Galilee, he said, the Sea of Galilee is a solemn, um, sail, sailless, tintless lake as unpoetical as any bathtub on earth. <laughs> I could go on and on, um, you know, the stuff that he said, but, but he, he was right. And there were, there were a bunch of pictures that he and his team took and, and it just was, you couldn't see Jews. Uh, in fact, um, he, he talked about um, this. He said, in Jezreel Valley, there's not a solitary village throughout the whole extent. Not for 30 miles in either direction. There are two or three small clusters <clears throat> of Bedouin tents, but not a single permanent habitation. One may ride 10 miles hereabouts and not see 10 human beings. Um, that was the Israel of, you know, 150 years ago. But if you go today back to Israel, that's one of the fun things about our tour is you, you realize that Israel's becoming, in the last 50 years particularly, it's becoming the land flowing with milk and honey again. And miraculous levels. It's one of the top producers of fruit and vegetable for Europe uh, in the world today. Israel, the little tiny speck of land, it's so small. And it was a total barren desert. By the way, the Jews were running out of water. The Sea of Galilee was getting lowered because you know the, the Jordan Valley is where they got their water to water the land flowing with milk and honey. But the Sea of Galilee was, was getting lower and lower. 
But the Jews, as they often do, they figured it out scientifically. Uh, they, they came up with a very efficient uh, desalinization process. So they take water out of the ocean now and they purify it. Um, and 80% now of the water they use for their farming is with their desalinization. No, no nation in the world has it figured out like the Jews. So meanwhile, they're, um, by the way, uh, when you go to Israel and you eat their fruit, it's some of the best fruit you'll ever eat. Super, super sweet. And when you ask about that, there's actually something that happened. <laughs> this is interesting. The plants that grow those fruits and vegetables and stuff, um, because of the saltiness that's in the soil, it forces the plant life there to sort of overcompensate for the salty soil and it produces a sweeter fruit because of the saltiness in the soil. That's kind of interesting, uh, especially if you realize what Hadrian did, you know, centuries ago. But anyway, all that to say, it's amazing to see what, what is happening by the, by, by the miracle of God, bringing the land back to, to life. And that's what he's saying here, verse 12, for the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, the ground shall give her increase, the heaven shall give their due. This is the Lord saying, there's coming a time. And see, the reason why this is interesting is we see this ramping up as we speak, which to me is an indicator that the millennial kingdom could be nearer in the future because there's several things. We're seeing the, the, the Jews regather in Jerusalem, still in unbelief today, but they're gathering, dry bones gathering, but we're also seeing the land coming back to life and the beauty of the trees and the fruit and the vegetables. That's one of the fun things to see when you go to Israel. Um, no longer will you be a curse among the heathen, like he says there uh, in verse 13. But verse 14, it says, um, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, saith the Lord of hosts, and I repented not. So again, have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear ye not. So the Lord's got good plans uh, for his people. Now, this idea of punishment, you know, I thought to punish you, um, did the Lord do that? Well, yeah, there was definite uh, correction for Israel. And the Bible even says, don't, don't forget, this is part of who God is. Uh, Hebrews 12, six, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, or the idea is spanking, punishing, uh, and scourges every son whom he receiveth. Now, um, uh, you and I are the same. In fact, Proverbs chapter three, verse 11 and 12, reminds us, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction, for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son, in whom he delighteth. Man, there's, there's, there's a problem in America today is um, one of the reasons I think we're seeing so many horrible things like shootings is because of absentee dads and these kids that are not being raised in discipline and with spanking, like the way the Bible prescribes it. Um, now, keep in mind, God doesn't punish you punitively and he doesn't punish the Jews punitively. The idea is to just make them feel pain for their, their bad wrongdoing or evil things. But, um, but when you think of punishment, God punishing you, he does correctively punish and chasten, but he doesn't punitive. What's the difference? Well, the reason you have to make that differentiation is because what would, what would be your penalty? How would God punish you if he punished you for your sins? Anybody? Death. Eternal death and hell, that's the punishment. So he's not punishing you for your sins, but he is correctively punishing, that is lovingly. Whom the Lord loves, he uh, chastens or corrects, uh, as it says there, even as a father in a son whom he delights. 
Um, that's important. Uh, by the way, you, you know that scripture in Jeremiah 29 um, that everybody loves, it's on all the mugs and Christian books and all that. You know, for I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of peace, not of evil. You know, thought, uh, uh, you know, he goes on to give you an expected or a future and a hope. Everybody knows that famous scripture. Do you know the context of that verse? I think the context is always a crack up because people miss that. But let's take a quick look at that. Jeremiah 29. I know there's a lot of words on there, but um, <laughs> for quickness, 29 verses 10 to 14, he says, for thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon. When is that? Zechariah's day. After 70 years accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and prepare perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. So in Zechariah's time, they're returning to Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, that's fulfilling this verse. And he says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, Zechariah, Zerubbabel, Jews during that time, um, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me and you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search, search for me with all your heart and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity and I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again to the place whence I have caused you to be carried away captive. This is the Lord promising that he would bring the Jews back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, as we're seeing that promise being perfectly fulfilled in our day and age. So, um, Mom and dad, you need to imitate the Lord when it comes to this verses uh, 14 and 15 about you know, uh, discipline, teaching our kids and uh, stuff like that. We've done whole sermons on how to discipline, how spanking should work. I have to say this every time, most spanking that I see uh, is abusive. Like there's parents that just don't know how to do it right. And if you're a parent that says, I don't believe in spanking, it's probably because you were spanked wrong by your parents. And so you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. You know, it's like, um, you've got to remember the Bible says that the parent that spares the, the rod of correction hates his son. Um, and there's a real thing about spanking the Bible talks about, but doing it in love and in wisdom with calmness, there should be no anger. And uh, there's a real, uh, you know, way of doing it that's very much like the Lord. So be careful, mom and dad. We need to discipline our children, but at the same time, we need to do it in love and it's very important to do it right. Um, so, uh, verse 16. Uh, These are the things you shall do, that you shall do. Uh, speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath. For all these things that I hate are things that I hate, saith the Lord. Wow. Isn't it amazing when the Bible says God hates stuff and people say, don't hate. You're not supposed to hate. Well, God hates stuff. So what, what does he hate? Well, speaking lies to your neighbor. Um, um, isn't it interesting? He gives us some very clear things. If you imagine evil in your heart against your neighbor, you know, if you're out there taking your garbage out and your neighbor's garbage is kind of pushing into your driveway, you're like, that stupid neighbor, what an idiot. God hates that. God hates you imagining evil in your heart to your neighbor. I mean, I don't wanna do anything that God hates. But one of the things here too is when you're uh, breaking oath, um, and, uh, you know, love no false oath. You know, somebody who makes a promise that isn't meant to be kept or wasn't kept. 
And uh, man, we make oaths in this life, oath or covenants. You could say marriage is an oath and covenant. Contracts in business are oaths and covenant. And one of the things God hates is people that don't take those oaths seriously. Um, you say, bro, you're just making more of that about marriage. Well, actually in the New Testament, the Bible makes it really clear, God hates divorce. That's what he says. And I'm sorry if that makes you angry or rubs you the wrong way. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. He hates divorce. And that's why if you're planning on getting married, you better make real certain the person you're marrying is the person you're gonna stick with the rest of your life. Um, but what if the person changes? Doesn't matter. You gotta make sure and, and check, are they gonna change? Know them enough to know, are they gonna change? But what if they, they go insane? Sickness and an elf. When you said that, you were supposed to mean it. That's part of the oath. Uh, in sickness, mental illness, or health. Like you're, you're signing on for something that's really, really radical. And God says, that's what I want you to do. Um, so I'm sorry. It's, uh, we, we just live in a culture that loves to go against the word and divorce and separation. Uh, by the way, separation, people think, that's good. That's a good plan. Uh, it's not. The Bible agrees there's a time a husband and wife can separate, but it's very clear what you're supposed to do. When you separate, you're supposed to separate for a season and with prayer and fasting, and if it's agreed on between the husband and the wife, you can separate. Um, I always crack up because I'm more separate. How long are you separating? As long as you can fast. <laughs> How long is that? Some of you are like, I could fast for a hundred years. <clears throat> Boy, you see a bunch of skeletons walking around the church. We're, we're separated. Um, no. Um, <laughs> now, there are cases uh, for safety and stuff like that where I don't believe a person, uh, you know, a wife being abused or whatever, of course. Uh, she's got to get out of the house. Abuse, physical abuse is something you don't just, you know, have to try to, you know, take that. You, you, there's, a, there's a place where you need to come and get help and have people get stand in between and, and mediate and stuff like that. But that's a different issue. Um, so all that to say, um, the oath. Be an oath keeper. Be careful on that one. Well, verse 18 goes on. It says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and of the fifth, of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth. Now pause for a second. Does this ring a bell? We're talking about the fasts of the fifth and seventh month and the, and the other ones too, the, the seventh, the fifth, uh, the fourth, and the 10th. So they had all kinds of fasting months and you're thinking, oh great, all this time of fasting. Um, but I love this verse. Why is that, Brett? Check it out. It says, all those fasts, the fast, the fifth, the fourth, the seventh, fast of the 10th month shall be to the house of Judah, joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love the truth and peace. Amen and amen. All those fasts you were doing, remember they asked that earlier in the chapters, you know, like, should we continue weep, fast, and mourn? The Lord's saying, no, you don't have to keep doing that. And here in all these fasts that they were doing, the Lord says, man, time to have a feast. I love that. The Bible says, delight thyself in fatness. What a great scripture. Um, <laughs> by the way, uh, Isaiah 61 verses one through four talks about how the spirit of the Lord anointed me, you know, to preach tidings and proclaim liberty and opening the prison and all that. But it, it goes on and talks about how, um, you know, the Lord is gonna bless and there's gonna be righteousness and beauty and, and not heaviness. How the Lord was gonna turn our sorrow into gladness, our mourning into dancing. Like this is what the Lord does. And uh, you see a little snapshot of this with this, uh, this weeping, mourning, fasting ritual the Jews were doing. The Lord says, man, instead, 
you're gonna have gladness and cheerful feasts, therefore love the truth and peace. I love that. From fasting to feasting. Good stuff. Well, verse 20, thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. And I will go also, yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord, the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Now this is really something. Um, this is where we're gonna see people, um, they're gonna wanna go to Jerusalem. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another and say, let us go speedily to pray. The idea of speedily, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, the idea is continually, uh, willingly is the idea. There's a positive here. It's not just run, we gotta pray. It, it's like we get to, it's a get to, not a got to. That's what we're seeing. What we're talking about here, just in a nutshell, is the millennial kingdom, there's gonna be people that are gonna be in a hurry because they're excited to go pray in Jerusalem. Uh, the millennial kingdom practice uh, will not be a got to, it'll be a get to. Um, that's one of the things I talk about here. I love church here at Athey Creek because I love the people that come because they get to be here. I mean, you know, who, who goes on a Wednesday night in the midweek of a busy week with lots of work to do and stuff? Uh, who goes to a Bible study? People that think it's a get to and not a got to. And I love that about our church. Um, people pile in for a Wednesday night Bible study. That's awesome. Um, but that, the millennial kingdom is gonna be like that 10 times over. We're just gonna be so glad to be with the Lord. Um, like the psalmist, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. You know, our feet shall stand in the gates of Jerusalem. Like it's gonna be a got to and not a get to. And by the way, if you're here um, and you just get real sick of Athe and me and our barn doors, and you're like, man, I'm sick of all that, then that's fine. But find a church where you can go and say, we get to go worship. We get to go seek the word and, and study scripture and you know, be given to the things that the church is supposed to be doing. Find a church where you can make it a get to. If you're watching online and you live in another state, find a church where you can go and, and say, this is a get to, to go and um, you know, um, fellowship with other believers. And, uh, and if you say there are no good churches, then you need to repent and change who you are because uh, God loves his church and you should do. Uh, that's just kind of the important thing. I think there's gonna be a bunch of people that are gonna have something to answer for when they stand before God. I didn't go to church because I hated Christians and I hate the church. And the Lord's gonna tell you, you're talking about my bride. Like, think about that for a second. The bride of Christ is the church. And you may not like it, but it's still his bride. And uh, you're gonna stand before God someday and answer for that. Um, I'm not sure I'd wanna be that person who's criticizing some bride and then have the bridegroom who makes, you know, um, uh, an MMA fighter look like a mosquito. Uh, he can just go and you're dead. Uh, like, I don't wanna mess with his bride. I don't wanna say anything bad about his bride. I'm gonna be like, yes, what a beautiful bride. <laughs> Woo, <laughs> that's great. Uh, be careful on that one. Well, verse 23 is great. Um, it says, um, this is gonna be a change, of course, in the millennial kingdom, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that 10 men shall take hold of all languages and of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Right now the world hates the Jews. Antisemitism is on the rise exponentially right now. 
In the millennial kingdom, the Jews will be appreciated as God's chosen people and they'll be exonerated as that and they'll be popular. Instead of being anti-Semites, everybody's gonna wanna, hey, can we go with you? Cause you're a Jew. It's like people will wanna hang out with the Jew in the millennial kingdom. And that's gonna be different than all of history. So all throughout history, the poor Jews have been the recipient of you know, anti-Semitism, slavery, the Holocaust, and all kinds of Holocausts throughout history. We could talk about you know, Hadrian, we could talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, we could talk about Pharaoh, we could talk about you know, um, Hanan and others throughout history that wanted to kill Jews. But in the millennial kingdom, they're gonna be celebrated. Well, I know it's late, but really quickly, chapter nine, here we go, on fire, really fast. Zechariah chapter nine, verse one. The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof. Uh, when the eyes of man, as all the tribes of Israel shall be toward the Lord, um, and Hamath also shall border thereby, Tyrus and Zidon, um, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold and heap silver in the dust of the fine gold as the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out and he will smite her uh, power in the seas and she shall be devoured with fire. Now, these are some prophecies we went over in previous studies, okay? Uh, so let, you can mark some of these down. Um, uh, basically, verse one and two is people are turning their eyes toward the Lord when trouble comes. And in this section, some people see uh, Alexander the Great. And this is kind of a reiteration of what Alexander the Great did in the book uh, of both Daniel and Ezekiel. If you, you can write this down in your notes. Daniel, when we studied Daniel chapter seven, eight, 10, and 11, that's where we were seeing prophecies concerning the, Alexander the Great uh, as it involved Jerusalem and Tyre and Zidon. And we talked about all those things. Um, and also um, uh, um, uh, in about 330 BC, um, we talked about the destruction of Tyre and Zidon. Um, and remember in Ezekiel chapter 26, where they, remember I talked about, they scraped Tyre, it became a flat tire. And um, you know, that whole thing, they didn't spare Tyre, that whole thing. Uh, we went over that in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 26. That's what this is referring to, but not just those regions. When, when also uh, Alexander came in verse five, it goes on and says, um, verse five, Ashkelon shall see it uh, and fear. Gaza shall also see it and be very sorrowful. Ekron for her expectation shall be ashamed and the king shall perish from Gaza and Ashkelon shall be not inhabited and a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines and I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abomination from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he shall be for our God and shall be as a governor in Judah, as Ekron, as a Jebusite. Now, what's this all about? Well, um, does anybody know what are these cities that we just described, anybody? All those cities we just mentioned, there's something common about them. Philistines, yes. They were Philistine cities. Um, there was a day, uh, me and a couple of buddies got a little rental car and went to all five Philistine cities. And we went to Ashkelon and Gaza and Ashdod. And those were all amazing archeological ruins. Um, but we went to Ekron and it took us, like we had to go through farmlands and cattle fields and stuff and do a little off-roading because Ekron hasn't really been uh, uh, dug up archeological that much. But when you go there, it's just this field where nobody is and there's a few rocks. And if you look, there's some fortresses under the ground. It's kind of a weird thing. Nobody, it's like nobody goes there, but we did, we went there. Uh, and it was, it was pretty funny. 
But there's a, there's, a, there's a city of the Philistines conspicuously missing from this list. Does anybody know which city that is? Gath. That's the biggest Philistine city. Why is that not listed here? The answer? The Jews had taken over Gath by this time. It was, it was already part of, it would already be part of, of um, Israel's cities. They'd taken over by the time this prophecy would come to pass. So it was the, the four Philistine cities, as it turns out, um, all that to say. It was already among Judah and Israel at this time. Well, verse eight, and I will encamp about uh, mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by and because of him that returneth and no oppressor shall pass through them anymore for now I have seen with mine eyes. Um, this, is, this is where Zachariah gets a little tricky because we're kind of talking about Alexander's time, but he, it, it, all in these chapters, sometimes he weaves in and out of the, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the end time, Zachariah's time. We've bounced around, but he's starting to move his way back through time. And there's always a gap in, in, and I want you to think about what's the gap that is always left out when these prophecies are given. Think about that just for a second. We'll come to that in a few minutes. But, um, but here in verse eight, the Lord is, says he will encamp around Jerusalem. Um, now that's, that's something that the Lord has done throughout the history. There's all kinds of great stories of Lord, the Lord of hosts camping around Jerusalem. But, um, but um, one of those stories is, is and you could bridge Alexander Great story. Remember when Alexander the Great came to crush Jerusalem? If you remember, the Lord encamped around Jerusalem. Did Alexander the Great crush Jerusalem? No, it was the only city he didn't crush. Why? And the story, I've done whole teachings on this. Jaduah, the priest, came out and remember showed Alexander. This comes from Josephus, the book of Antiquities, chapter 11, um, uh, number 11, chapter eight, is where the story is told of Jaduah coming out and showing Alexander his, his name, the, the great world leader uh, listed in the book of Daniel. Not his name, but his, who the Greek leader would come and crush the whole world. And Alexander was so moved that his name was in the Jewish Hebrew Bible prophetically that he did not destroy Jerusalem. And some argue that that's what this is talking about in verse eight, the Lord encamping around Jerusalem. But then you see the gaze of Zechariah go farther in verse nine. And we looked at this last Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly, riding upon the ass, upon the colt of the foal of an ass. First coming or second coming? First coming. Verse 10. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. First coming or second coming? Second coming. Do you see what I'm saying? You can understand why the Jews are like, well, why didn't Jesus conquer all the nations from sea to shining sea? Because that's what the prophecy says. But there's a gap. There's a gap between verse nine and verse 10. And does anybody wanna know what you call that gap? Who can say? Church age, that's the big difference. And you can always factor in the church age when there's a gap in Bible prophecy. But the idea is he's gonna get rid of all the weaponry and all the bows. Isaiah chapter two, verse four, this is the part of the scripture the UN puts in front of their, like they're the ones who are gonna make people beat their spears into pruning hooks and nation. But it says in verse four, he shall judge among the nations. That's the Lord, not UN, united nothing. Um, he shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. You see, that's, that's what this Zechariah verse is talking about. Well, verse 11, as for thee also by the blood of thy covenant, 
I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein there is no water. Man, I love this. Uh, man, we could talk about this. The only deliverance mentioned or for mankind is, is through the blood covenant uh, of Jesus Christ in his first coming. You know, um, we like to, as Americans, talk about our liberty and our freedom, um, but man in this world today doesn't recognize that he is actually a prisoner to sin and, and stuff. That's why we feel so bad about what we see going on in the world today. But we, like Romans seven fourteen, you know, man has been sold under sin. He's a slave to sin. But the idea is only by the blood of Jesus coming and dying on the cross, um, the Lord alone delivers his prisoners, as it says here in verse 11, out of the pit where there's no water. Uh, I love that. that. Man, we could talk about that verse just in the gospel. Verses 12 um, uh, through 17, uh, deal with um, more about the war after Alexander the Great. So it, it bounces around here a little bit. Verse 12, uh, turn you the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee when I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as a sword of the mighty man. When did the sons of Zion go up against the um, the sons of Greece, anybody? When did that happen? Right, somebody said it, the Maccabean revolt. After Alexander the Great, remember the four generals, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, those, those four generals took over and then the Ptolemies and Seleucids went after it and Antiochus Epiphanes came in like 170-ish uh, BC and took over Jerusalem, killed tens of thousands of Jews and then made the priest drink pig's blood. The whole Hanukkah story came out of that. Um, when the Maccabeans, they were the sons of the priests they killed on the temple steps, the, you know, the, the Antiochus men. And the Maccabees were these sort of green beret, SEAL Team 6 kind of guys who came and just thumped um, Antiochus Epiphanes. And it's an amazing story. The Maccabean revolt is something worth studying in history. That's what this is referring to. Verse 13 to the end. In verse 14, and the Lord shall be seen over them and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning and the Lord God shall blow the trumpet and shall go with whirlwinds of the south and the Lord of hosts shall defend them and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones and they shall drink and make a noise as, though, uh, as through wine and they shall be filled like bowls as the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as a flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown, lifted up as an ensign upon his hand. Um, interesting, you know, this, this idea of the stones and ensign and all this stuff. Um, for you note takers, maybe you can quickly jot these down. We don't really have time to go over this tonight. But, um, you know, these uh, attributes of what these guys get from the Maccabean revolt, um, speaks of the Lord himself in, in kind of profound ways. The Lord is the shepherd of them, it says here, and shall save his flock, verse 16. Psalm 23, Psalm 100. The stones of the crown, Malachi chapter three, verse 17. Um, and the ensign upon the land, Isaiah talks about that as well, the ensign upon the land. And these are cool um, things that the Lord does for his people during this Maccabean revolt where he saves them. But then he ends, and I love this because no matter what prophecy we talk about, how crazy Bible prophecy gets, you don't wanna forget the Lord is good. Don't forget that. And that's how he ends this verse 17. For how great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful 
and new wine, the maids. I love this. In the midst of all the trouble that Israel has, the Lord is still good and he's still gonna get the people through. And that's what we, we think, well, the Lord is good. You might see bad things happening in the world today, shootings in Texas and things that break our hearts and stuff like that, but the Lord is still good. And he's got a plan for his people and he's got a future and a hope for us believers and it's gonna be glorious. Is this gonna be great to be in heaven someday? Man, I look forward to that. Well, we'll pick up in chapter 10 next week. Lord, how thankful we are for your word. It is in fact living and powerful and we're reminded of just how you did intervene for the Jewish people. Lord, we remember how you stepped up for the Maccabees and gave them that miraculous victory over the um, you know, solutions. And Lord, how thankful we are that you keep your word. Your oath in your word is as good as gold. Lord, you always are right and you're always true. And we, we look forward to that day where you come back for your church, rapture us, take us to be with you for the millennial kingdom when you return and rule and reign from Jerusalem. But until then, Lord, I pray that you, we would be busy, that our hands would be at work doing the work that you've called us to do. Um, Lord, building the temple, as it says there, doing the work of the temple. I pray that we would do that, Lord, too. So bless the church. Give us strength for these days we live in Jesus' name. Amen.